Empire of the Wheel was really sort of a, of a fascinating thing to me because it sort of opened up these different possibilities. And then we, and we were looking for correspondences everywhere. The thing is, is that this isn't just San Bernardino and it's not just Somerset and it's not just the town that I grew up in and it's not just Santa Barbara, California, what I lived in for a dozen years and has its weirdness. It's everywhere. Produced and recorded at Pure Grain Studios. I'm Nathan Isaac, and this is Pennyroyal. That's what I would suggest. This isn't just one town. You can find this all over the place. This is as common as dirt. These type of things and correspondences go on everywhere. And, you know, to me, that opens up the nightmare scenario that James Shelby Downard wasn't crazy. we consider James Shelby Downard, regardless of whether he was mad or not mad, I do think that he, if he existed, or whoever possibly used him as a literary invention to disseminate certain ideas and concepts, whether it was him as a real person or, or a group of people behind him, those concepts, the concepts of mystical toponymy and synchro mysticism, and this this view of the United States and the world and small town America as harboring this symbolic topology across everything, and it's very much a, a schizophrenic view of the world. It's a view of the world where everything has meaning. Even the tiniest thing means something. But you don't know how that meaning ties into all of the other thousands of things that have meaning attached to them. And so that's that's where where the the madness comes in. Because if you look at it and just see millions of symbols then you don't understand any of it. There's no way to make sense of it. There's no way to communicate or pick a signal out of the noise of all of those symbols. But in a sense, that's what we're talking about in this story. And that's what I began to realize. I began to realize that on the smallest level, what we were seeing was a reflection of a much larger pattern that it really was turtles all the way down. What we called synchronicity was part of a different physical system or set of rules that seemed to be playing out. The most difficult thing in this mystery is understanding what it's trying to communicate to you. Because in pursuing this and investigating this, It's the communication that we received back. It was the interaction that we received back that seemed to indicate something deeper and deeper on a level of how how the world functions. But it also told us a lot about the town we lived in and what was going on here because it wasn't exactly what we thought it was. And I, and, and I think at this point, you may have an idea of what you think it is, but all of those things are not what you think they are. It's crazy, man. Like, see, it's just, <laughs> there's this, like, um, 
on a you know on a, a micro level or a level here there's this you know there's definitely this uh paranormal layer to all this or some type of like weird mystical synchronism kind of thing um and then there's it, there's all these ties to all this like weird far reaching conspiracy shit you know what i mean like it's it's just strange how kentucky's all tied into this but that a lot of this reverberates, you know, we wouldn't have found a lot of this stuff if it fucking cave goblins led us to yeah. the, to fucking uh, Guterman. Well, it's like fractals almost. Like it, we're studying a tiny part that is an exact replica of the entire whole. You yeah, know, yeah. that's what. Yeah, that's yeah. I think it is something like that. It's uh, it's like whatever this is is like is like maybe archetypally driven, but it's um, it's like it's funneling down to the smallest layer. And and if there's noise in it, it's at the edges, right? It's at the periphery. But like in any town like Somerset or Bigger, I would say that there's a lot of connections to this, right? No, there's peculiar weird connections here that are, we, we don't understand, but it's almost like this shit is happening everywhere, you yeah. know, because people are... I, I sometimes think that like the satanic panic stuff is almost, or even Twin Peaks is almost a ritual in the sense that it creates the perspective for you to see these things, right? Yeah, well, definitely Twin Peaks. I mean, no question. I mean, there's just, I mean, that's just so loaded with symbolism and what have you, which is probably very pertinent to all of this. <laughs> it is. It is sort of about this weird idea of like a cl- a perfect classic America, like. 1950s apolitical America. You know what I'm saying? And, mm-hmm. and like, like those are the values that we should harken back to. But it's like a cover for this dark, you know, it's a mask for all this darkness, you know, and all the weird shit and all the pedophilia and all this. You know what I mean? Like the child prostitution. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, you know, I mean, that's really, I just think symbolic of how a lot of this stuff actually works. I mean, you know, I mean, that's something I've written a lot about my, you know, blog, but I mean, when you really kind of pull the layer back and a lot of this stuff, it's like, you're not seeing these kind of kooky new age cults or something, but you're actually seeing like, you know, really radical Catholic groups like Opus Dei or the Knights of Malta or something like that, or these, you know, Christian dominionists or the identity ones, but it's all just kind of a cover for this weird occult ritualistic shit. But I mean, superficially though, you know, I mean, they're devout Christians and all this other stuff. Um, yeah, it's just amazing. Uh, I mean, that's why I, I think, Nathan, you're the one who said, I think all these things are kind of tricksters in one way or the other. Um, yeah, I think that's maybe the worst prospect. All of this is really just kind of some cosmic joke and we're the punchline. Yeah, I think so, man. I, just all this stuff, like, it just invites you to have all these theories, you know? But it's never any of those things, you know, whatever it is. It just seems to be toying with us, you know? You want there to be order. We're imposing order on it, Right. We're coming up with great theories that give us insight into ourselves and other things, you know, but it's like never really the thing. Never before have we lived at a time when a story like this or a story like Hellier or any story where you're being asked to believe a series of things that seem absolutely incredible, fantastical, and in many ways, magical. And trying to, to, to ask people to, to believe in magic. We've lived in a very rational world for a long time. A very scientific world of cause and effect. A happens, then B happens, then C happens, then D happens. It's a very linear existence. It's how we were raised. It's how the world we live in was constructed. But now there's been an assault on reality and what's real 
and what's true. And never before has a time existed for magic to exist again and for there to be a re-enchantment of America and the world. People are telling all of us that nothing is true, that everything is fake. All of the news you receive, everything everyone is telling you is fake. You've got no certain ground to stand on. And that's the perfect place, the perfect time for all of us to rediscover magic in our lives and in the places that we live. At the beginning of all of this, I had contacted Richard Spence because I saw these correlations between the murders that we had found here in Somerset and these disappearances and the assassination of Sammy Catron, which seemed very much to me to hearken back to James Shelby Downard and this idea of the killing of the King ritual. And so I contacted Richard because I really wanted to know if he thought what was happening here could be a similar pattern of evidence or the structure of not really a conspiracy, but of some weird working by a group. And so when we spoke to Richard, he really explained to us that so much of what we believe and so much of what we believe is certain ground is a lie. And people that know how to control the narrative try to control the narrative. But knowing that people are trying to control the narrative means that you now can try to control the narrative yourself. You can tell the story. You can rediscover the real. So one of the things that I come across in the, you know, various weirdo research that I do on things. And again, as I mentioned, if it's not Williamson, it's right. The consistent theme I eventually figured out after years of doing this among the, the historical figures I'm interested in is that they're all pathological liars. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I'm for some reason never interested in people who tell the truth because they're boring. Okay. Riley is a pathological liar. Uh, um, you know, you know, Williamson is a pathological liar. Crowley is a lot of the time. I mean, sometimes he's telling the truth, but he, you know, he, he knows the, the interest of deception, but that's always what, and that's, that's what this whole narrative is formed out of every narrative. You know, it's, you know, you ever heard the, the term that history is a set of lies agreed upon? Well, that's really what it is. Okay. It's really a set of opinions about these things. So everything we tend to take for granted about any historical event or anything that happens or whatever you've been told by your parents, the rest of it, is this combination. It's this mixture of truth and lies. And they're always mixed together in some way. And I'm not necessarily sure you can ever entirely separate them. Because then you get into these subtleties that with everything that is true is to some degree untrue, and everything that is a lie is in some degree not a lie. All right, it's they're they're not really separable from each other. So all you have to do to get people to do what you want or to influence them is not to absolutely prove anything. It's simply to create, well, as one person put it, you don't have to prove it. All you have to do is create the doubt or the question that it exists. Doubt is the way in which you can manipulate someone. So one of the things that the occult and the sort of magical spooky aspect does is that it can create strong beliefs in people and it can also generate a great deal of fear, both of which are readily manipulable. I mean, really, there's no better way to manipulate a human being than fear, unless it's, you know, sex. But And if you can combine the two of those together, imagine what you can accomplish with that. So that's where I really think that the two come in. I mean, if you can, if you can essentially spook someone in the sense of, of making them fearful, of creating 
you know, the possibility that, I don't know, there are cave goblins in the mine, all right? They don't have to be cave goblins in the mine, but, you know, just kind of create the idea that there's something sort of spooky in this area, something dangerous, and one of the things that we'll do, we'll keep most people out of it. You know, the curious troublemakers will show up, but you can handle those in different ways. You just you just carry the deception one step further. So that's the thing that I think is the real commonality in these things. The commonality between criminals, spies, and occultists is the consistent practice of deception as a basic means of operation. So in that sense, it's not too strange to find them in bed together. I mean, I guess, you know, it comes back to this question, you know, does magic work? You know, is, is you know, are these things real? And in, in saying that it doesn't have to be real to use it, I wasn't trying to debunk the idea that it exists. I mean, frankly, okay, here's my view on it. I'm an agnostic on it, all right? Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. It doesn't have to, but it could be. Here's, here's what I think. Okay, where's my sort of standard? This is what I'm reasonably convinced of. Again, this is what I believe, kind of, as opposed to what I know. We live in a small world inside a much larger one. Now, to give you a simple example of that is that we can see a variety of colors, but we can only see the colors that our brain is set up to receive. If there's a color that we don't have the coding for, we just don't get it. And beyond that, we can't even imagine. You, know, there's, there's, you cannot imagine a color you have never seen because it simply doesn't exist. It's there. You know, I can guarantee you that that spectrum, you know, of visible light doesn't begin and end with what we can see. It's there. It's part, it's this part of this in the same way that your dog can hear sounds that you can't. All right. So there's a whole sonic, a whole sonoscape going on that you're not part of. It's true with every sense that we have. So we're also, the other thing you have to keep in mind is that the whole world exists inside your head. And this kind of turns things around, but we tend to think of it, but there, there is no external reality beyond the information that's simply processed by our brain. So really what reality, what we think reality is, which is the only thing, is a movie projected inside your head. Outside of that movie, outside the theater, is everything else. It is the bigger world which we can't see, we can't smell, we can't touch, but may very well be able to see and smell and touch us. That is, I, I think, you know, what would make a kind of operative theory about what we call the paranormal, which, you know, covers a huge, you know, it's a big ball of wax, is that what we're sort of getting is an interaction with this larger world that otherwise we can't really process. And what we may, you know, what our brains may be doing is constantly trying to fit it into some mold or another, because that's the other thing that human brains love to do is we love to fill in blanks. No, roughly that would be my explanation of what the paranormal is. And then consider that much of the goal of everything from, let's say, straightforward occult societies to secret societies. What does every secret society that has ever existed promise the people who are members, who are selected, belong to it? Greater awareness. We're going to teach you the secrets of the universe. We're going to expand. You will know things that no one else knows. And what everybody's selling, I mean, in fact, what every religion sells, keep in mind, is access to this greater world. And that, you know, you know, from everything from, you know, some sort of garden variety cult to, you know, major religions, which are just kind of cults writ large, aren't they? Very successful ones. Then that's what they would want to have. So I think those those possibilities are there. We're probably tapping into this stuff all the time. Another crucial person that we began to discuss this mystery with who we approached to help us 
understand better how to engage whatever this phenomena was, whatever we were calling the Penny Royal Mystery, there seemed to be magic at the heart of all of it, and that there were these magical groups coming from Cincinnati and coming from other places, coming from all over the world to this place because of the Kentucky Anomaly and because of the Cincinnati Vortex and because of so many strange things that intersected here in such a magical way and in such a way that it seemed there had to be something guiding this. There had to be something directing this. And we began to talk to Marco Visconti, who is a ceremonial magician who lives in London, England. Marco is an expert on magic and the history of magic and his view of magic and how it's connected to this and connected to Hellier and the fact that he was a former OTO member and his familiarity with Telema and also his familiarity with the Bakeball and Michael Bertio and so many other major voices in magic in modern times. Marco began to help us understand what we were experiencing. Like what we're experiencing right now, I would say, yeah. is a form of magic, right? I would, I would, I have, I have no doubts that whatever we have been, whatever you know, Greg and the, and the team, you know, bumped into. Already in 2012, if you think about it, we're talking about eight years in the making. So uh, it's just that it is an ongoing process of communication from this n-dimensional uh, creatures, entities that are communicating. And they've been communicating with humanity the entire experience of humanity, like, you know, the, uh, the prophet that would hear the voice of God. He had an experience like this, you know, John of Patmos uh, seeing the, 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 the apocalypse and writing the apocalypse. He was having an experience like this, uh, you know, Indrid Cold is an experience like this. The Mothman is an experience like this. Of course, there are different ways how people react to this, because um, something that I've, what was very interesting, especially is, that, you know, the, in the Hellier, you, we see there you, where you guys are, you know, the Amy character, right? Like, and for me, it was like, oh, wow, that's, that's, that's a case of, you know, a bad experience. This do happen. You know, it's not that what I'm saying is that, oh, this, this experience are, are, are absolutely sane and safe. If you are some, someone who's not prepared to see certain things, somebody who's not prepared, maybe you have, you know, some sort of mental issues or you are, you are a drug abuser. I mean, you're in a state of imbalance and you out of sudden you see something that you don't expect. You know, like there's almost this entries from an n-dimensional space. You will see the monsters. You will see uh, the abuse. You will see the child, child being sacrificed, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I, I, again, I don't know. I, this is not something that I want. I mean, I'm not, I'm not disputing that she didn't see these things. Magic exists in place by accretion. Like you know, you, you do something, then I come along. I do something. That those are those are psychic layers that that stay there and stay there for a long, long time. And even when you know maybe will start to fade you can always go back there because magic exists outside space and time so whenever you do magic you just you really what you do is you project your consciousness outside the boundaries of space and time and from that vantage point you don't you see a tapestry right and on that tapestry everything that ever happened and is so of course you can go and you can go to the places where maybe massive magical operations have been practiced or have been, you know, they've been done over there. And then you can, you can tap into this energy and tap into this energy. I, I know that I'm talking about this and it might sound very weird to think about it, but there's another way to say it really. That's it. You know, you, you, what you do really is you project yourself outside space and time, and then you look back onto this reality in order to see the progression 
of time as a tapestry and moving around time the way you want. This is pretty much honestly if if you if you read mad magic there's a lot of like this like time magic and and in Michael Bertio, which but it was another name that came out again and again. Um, one of one was one. He was one. He is one of my teachers. I mean, not anymore because we we, we haven't seen each other in many years. But he was at the time. Um, it's all about his time magic practices. You know, becoming a spider and moving uh, moving yourself a were spider actually, which is an interesting concept, and moving yourself onto the web of time and space as you want. That's that's the that I mean that, that's one of the most advanced magic you can do, and I have no doubt that you know people like Nema and them, you know the Cincinnati Journal of Ceremonial Magic, the people behind them, the Beit Cabal, were doing the same kind of stuff. So in many ways, yes, uh, whatever is there at, Semper, at Serpent Mound, um, there's definitely something you would be able to pick it up. One of the craziest things that we discovered while researching this project was the possibility that Aleister Crowley, the famous occultist and head of the OTO, whose name has come up numerous times from numerous people, as you've listened to this story, Crowley overshadows a great deal of this mystery. What we discovered was that Aleister Crowley probably, at one point, was in Somerset or passed through Somerset. We know that his mother's sister moved her family to Livingston County, Kentucky, in the early 1900s. And while Crowley was here from 1914 to 1919, he no doubt visited that part of his family. It's also apparent from Aleister Crowley's diaries is that he took a trip to Mammoth Cave in 1919 as well. Other evidence that we found established that Crowley had contacted the Freemason Lodge in Louisville, Kentucky, the Magian Society is a group within the Freemasons who maintain documents and history of actual ceremonial magic, Freemason magic. And so he had contacted a man named Norwood, who was the head of the Magian Society in Louisville, attempting to gain access to their rituals. This, in turn, led Norwood to contact the authorities and claim that Crowley was an agent for the Germans, which prompted his quick abandonment of the U.S. Now, before he left the U.S. in 1919, he took a trip through the South, and we know that he stayed with friends in Georgia for a few weeks. As you travel from Cincinnati through Kentucky, and as you're trying to get around to Mammoth Cave or to Louisville or any of these places, it's very likely you would have used the rail line between Cincinnati and Somerset. As we've discussed earlier in the show, it was a major, major rail line uh, used by most people to travel through the U.S. And so if Crowley had taken a tour of the South and went to Atlanta and other places in the South in that fall of 1919, it's very likely that he did pass through Somerset. But we know that he visited Mammoth Cave, and he may very well have visited the Grand Canyon of the South, which is an area in the southeastern part of Kentucky that borders Virginia and West Virginia. And in that area, there's a town called Brakes. And that's where Brakes Interstate Park is located. And that's where Elkhorn City is located. And that's where Dan Dutton and I were going to restage his opera, The Fawn, to invoke Pan. Marco Visconti pointed out to me there's a connection between Brakes and Crowley. So... I see that Hellcorn City is close proximity to Brakes Interstate Park, yeah, right? It's a, it's a, yeah. So, one of the most important texts in Telema that speak about Pan is the Book of Lies, Liber 333. Falsely called Brakes. <laughs> I mean, Are that's, you kidding me? That, that is the actual title of the book. 
No fucking way, man. No, no, no that's, that's that. This is interesting. This is well, so, so 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 when this when this show, when the show came out right on November the 29th, I stayed up right and I like I would, you know selfishly skipped to the episode I was in to make sure I didn't look completely like a nut job, right? And I see that it's named the Secret Commonwealth, and I'm like, what the fuck, right? He didn't know anything about Dan. Then I see that the final episode is the Night of Pan. Then I watch that and see that they perform a ritual, a ritual. to right. summon Pan. I texted Greg at 7 a.m. that morning and said, dude, I'm working on a film where the final scene in April, this April, we're going for Beltane to film Dan and this have this happen. And Greg was like, I'm sitting here looking at my wall and there are pictures of Dan Dutton all over it. He was like, no one knows this because we didn't know how to fit him in the story or why his name kept popping up. Right? <laughs> well, um, <laughs> this, is, this is great. Uh, let, me just re- let me just read it. Is. The Book of Lies, full title, which is also falsely called Breaks. The wonder is a falsification of one thought of Frederick Rebel. This book deals with many matters on all planes it is an African publication of the Babes of the Abyss, but this is recommend. This is yeah. Break, break, break at the foot of thy stones, O sea, and I would that I could utter the thoughts that arise in me, which is quote by Tennyson, and Tennyson wrote the Fairy Queen. After Crowley left the U.S., he went to the Abbey of Telema on the island of Cephalu in Italy. While he was there, he painted a great deal. And one of the paintings that he made while he was there was The Moon, A Study for Tarot, which was a depiction of the moon card. But when you look at that painting, it, just, it immediately jumped out at me that you can take that painting and you can put it over top of a map of the area of breaks and it lines up almost exactly to the eastern border of Kentucky with Virginia and West Virginia with the towers perfectly positioned over Ashland, Kentucky where the Adena Mounds are located. In the western tip of Virginia is the area of the abyss and Ra is holding a staff and the head of that staff looks like it's right where Elkhorn City and Hillier are located. Just the whole thing seems so strange when you think about the idea that Kenneth Grant put forth, Crowley's secretary and later head of the OTO. He believed that there really was a gateway that had been opened by the Adena or the Hopewell or some Native American people And this was the same belief shared by NEMA, that there was this Cincinnati vortex, this gateway that had been opened and left open and allowed all sorts of strangeness to come through. Now, Crowley painted the moon painting in 1920. He wrote Breaks in 1912. But throughout this entire story, throughout investigating this entire mystery, there's been this weird element of retrocausality. Even in the way that in 1979, Dan was at Oakwood and interacted with whatever those intelligences were that were inhabiting those residents. And that interaction that day set in motion a number of events based on his secret commonwealth and the fawn. And so I asked Marco about this too, because it's it's this idea of retrocausality, this idea that something in the future, something happening now, or something that will happen, could possibly be affecting something in the past, or vice versa, that something was set in motion then that's triggering things now. Uh, retrocausality, uh, it's, you know, we were at the phenomenon, and like a Dr. Eric Vargo spoke of that. Retrocausality is, is what I call 
all magic <laughs> because remember what i just said right magic true magic exists outside space and time what you do you you get outside the stream and you go back into the stream whenever you want now remember that you, you when when did crowley was was what like 19 1919 something like that breaks libra 333 came out in 1912 so a few years before so for me I mean, is this a case a case of retrocausality? Is this is this a thing that can, can we still think that all these things are connected? From much of point, we can, uh, because what happens there is that, especially if we are looking at like what's Crowley, we, in the 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 Moon card in in the Tothar is a very very complex card. It's a card that tells a lot of secrets, especially the secrets of crossing the abyss. Okay, you know you see you see the camel. The camel are the five V's, V V V V V, crossing the abyss. That's that's and that, that's the you know that's the big deal in Telema, right? It's not so much you know reaching the solar consciousness in Heliopolis. It's going across the abyss. And Crowley crosses the abyss, are in the tens, right? That's when when he when he goes in the well, actually even before, but that's 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 when he started really talking about it. It is definitely possible that. These things are retrocausal, retro <laughs> not to say that. And it's definitely possible that he has had some interesting experience here. Well, there, not here. Uh, and he put some hints in the in the. I mean, it's it. I don't have, and I cannot tell you for sure because I mean, I don't. There's no proof of that. But it's definitely a very compelling idea. Um, it, it's a very compelling idea that maybe even he did it. Um, you know. Unconsciously, like like say like almost like you know that's that's an area that he uh, you as a magician you want to go there, and it totally fits with whatever we've been experiencing all of us in the last year or so because it feels like you know Brown Mountain, uh, Somerset, the Kentucky that area the anomaly that's connected with the idea of the abyss and the idea of the abyss it's so connected with transcending human consciousness you know not on back to nema um it fits right <laughs> it's almost like the more you the more you put it the more you put things on the blackboard and then say oh yeah oh yeah it'll fix almost perfectly the thing is that for 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 those who's going to listen to this what I, what i would like to tell them is that do not try to to make sense of it logically because that's mixing the point of magic a major part of all of this has been discovering information not only facts and stories and data but information in general about about the mystery and also the mystery of the information that we were receiving where was it coming from why were we receiving it and during our conversations with Steven Snyder, the story of cybernetics came up because early in the 1950s, there were these Macy's conferences that were held for cybernetics. And they involved a who's who of scientists of the day, scientists that went on to create things that have changed our society. Who we are and where we are now are all because of these people. And the things that they discovered and that they talked about ended up creating computers and rocket ships and have completely altered our world and our society. But when I heard the name cybernetics, the first thing that it called to mind for me was this idea of the Terminator or man and machine. But really, cybernetics is just the study of systems and how to control a system. But yes, the cybernetic movements came out of that. And one of the big guys actually involved in it was um, Warren McCulloch, I believe. And uh, he was definitely one of the leading figures in the cybernetics movement. And um, also, ironically, McCulloch was also the guy who had originally encouraged Buharic's research and, you know, ESP and stuff like that. Buharic had actually briefly worked with him in the late 1940s, around the same time that, uh, you know, he was involved in all this. So, okay, the Macy's conferences were a set of meetings of scholars from various disciplines held in New York on the direction of Frank Fremont Smith and Joseph Macy Jr. Foundation starting in 1941 and ending in 1960. And yeah, I mean, these, you know, just went into a lot of insane stuff. They had 
conference topics on cerebral inhibition meetings, cybernetics conferences. But yes, it is often applied to computers and so forth. But essentially, in a lot of ways, you could actually almost argue transhumanism was a big product of cybernetics because it was also concerned with how bio machines, i.e. humans, also interacted with actual machines and so forth. Social control was a big part of that and how social control was structured and the techniques of it also, you know, to increase efficiency and that type of thing. But yes, it's it's a very arcane discipline. Like I said, I mean, it had just people from neuroscience, behavioral psychology, philosophy, a lot of different thinkers were involved in it. Um, Norbert Wiener was generally considered to be the one of the major architects of it. And bizarrely, I think he had actually worked with um, Vannevar Bush, too, who was obviously one of the major leading figures in the development of the personal computer. And of course, he's also linked in with a lot of the conspiracy theories with uh, Majestic 12 and all that stuff, too. So the cybernetics, you know, movement really brought together just a lot of, uh, you know, incredible thinkers and so forth from a lot of different disciplines. And I mean, it had a huge influence in just research for artificial intelligence, for this more arcane stuff that we've been talking about with behavior modification, with aspects of social control. Uh, I mean, it really encompassed a lot of different, uh, in many cases, kind of unsettling uh, subjects. It also very much deals with information and information systems and observation. And that's really what stood out to me were these conferences on not just cybernetics, but second order cybernetics. Because in cybernetics, there's an observer and an event or information that's observed. But in second order cybernetics, the observer observes an event or a piece of information which creates a system. But then there's feedback into the system where the system then observes the observer observing the event that created the system. And that creates this second-order feedback loop. And the more that those feedback loops continue, the more complexity in that system. Well, all of this sounded to me so much like synchronicity because... When you observe a synchronicity or observe something like that, those things are happening to us a million times a day. It's like we were saying with the symbols. There's a million pieces of significant things. But when you focus on one correspondence or one action or one piece of information, there's a feedback loop created. And then the system observes you observing that. And it continues. And so the more that you invest your observation and interaction with that thing, and the more complex the system becomes, the more it will seem that that thing is entangled with you, entangled with your life. It becomes extremely personal. And I think that's what's happened in Hellier. And I think that's part of the phenomena in Hellier that Greg and Dana and the team hit upon was that this mystery too, the Penny Royal mystery and mysteries like Hellier, whenever you start to interact with this phenomena, it begins interacting with you. But in essence, you're sort of interacting with yourself because you're responsible for creating that system by making those observations. And so when the system begins to observe you making those observations, it all becomes extremely significant. And the complexity increases many times, many fold, when you add new observers. So in the case of Hellier, the more people that observed that mystery, observed that investigation, the more that they became a part of that system that they had created. And it just got bigger and bigger and more and more significant. And in a sense, th what we're talking about are egregores, thought forms. So the phenomena may in fact just be that, an information structure that only exists because people are observing it. And it's the same thing with hauntings or poltergeist activity, maybe even UFOs. But this, this idea that once you start to observe these things, they begin to become more and more real. But you're the one that's responsible for it. And in the case of this Penny Royal mystery, that's what I started to realize, was that we were the ones that were partly responsible for a lot of these things that were happening because we were interacting with it. We 
were observing and continuing to observe and add more observers. I was telling the story to, I mean, everybody. And the more people that became involved in the investigation, the bigger the system became. And it was as if the system, and I won't say that it was sentient, because I don't think that it's an intelligence, but I do think it's a system of complexity, a structure of information. And once it exists and once it gets so complex that homeostasis emerges or this sort of need to reduce entropy in the system, I think that's when things start to move with even greater purpose. Is asinine the right word for all the information that has come up? <laughs> like, that, it has just been step after step after step that is built onto, onto each other that we would have not paid any attention to individually. We would have not paid any attention to if this piece of information came a month before it did. Like, it has been very purposeful and very directed towards us what we have been getting out of this investigation and what we were supposed to find here. So there have been a lot of things that have come up that we would have never guessed about. Somerset or Kentucky or a small town or even ourselves as human beings that has been reflected in the research that we've looked up. But at this point, there's been so much information and so many, you know, for lack of a better term, synchronicities come forward that there's no denying what we are in the middle of experiencing here. I think, I think what maybe doesn't come through to people in the podcast is, is maybe how, uh, personal it is, right. And how, how, much it was just you know a group of people looking into weird stuff it looked like the beginning of a movie you know it's the hook that gets you in there it's these murders of these kids and there's people protesting and and it's it's this really dark strange mystery that's this hole that takes you farther and farther right and at the same time that this investigation is happening in parallel with that i feel like there was sort of a spiritual excavation uh, as well i think some some of us you know got into looking at ourselves and how how our own sense of selves is being affected by and affecting the people around us and and trying to to be better conduits of whatever is trying to manifest here and i think that there if you look at just the macabre nature of all of the the terrible things and there's a list of horrible things that have happened here right but there is this other list of beautiful things you know somerset was this oasis between cincinnati and knoxville you know it was this nice place where people could come and and you know eat nice food and stay in a nice hotel and and it was you know it had a, it had a, it's always had like a vacation quality to it too you know but at the same time there's been horrific violence you know and so it's it's sort of like i'm not saying that they're connected but there is a strange parallel in our own investigation of the sort of highs and the sort of the sort of underneath subterranean aspect of of the town you're living in and i think that manifests in people's dreams and their visions and, and the, the sort of things that have happened here, it, it could just be a sort of a harmonic of the poverty and abuse that's happening in, in the culture around you all the time. And it's reverberating sort of at a cultural scale. You know, it could just be that these, these common motifs are in people's dreams or their nightmares or their, or their, you know, reclaimed memories or, or whatever it might be. But there is, I think, some strangeness to what they're saying. Even if the person's crazy, even if uh, these murders seem to be, you know, have local explanations or whatever, there is almost this sort of constellated or kaleidoscopic vision that the universe is clicking into. And, 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 and I think that once we start digging deeper and deeper into it, we'll see that what we think of as these sort of fluid associations are actually more like 
fixed associations. There's some kind of architecture to the weirdness that we see. Because I think at times it's too specific to us and too specific. Uh, you know, if uh, anyone else would think that they were really being fucked with, you know, if we didn't really know our, each other and the people that we were around, we would think that someone was orchestrating this whole thing, you know. The cybernetic thing, as far as, as like, I, I know in my own life, this has been, and this is this tangential in a sense, but I know in my own life, I think that it really changed the way I thought of, of things because it's sort of way, a way of thinking of karma, right? And so it's like, are you giving, are you feeding the things that feed you? Right. Or are you creating cycles of dependence and negativity or what are you doing with your life? Right. And so I feel like if we are feeding the things that feed us, then we're growing whatever needs to grow. I don't know the answer of what it is and what it wants or whatever, you know, but I think a lot of the, this is us being in tune with that in different ways. It may be this investigation. It could be the studio and the music that's made here. It could be the beer that's made here. It could be the, the space that's created that, that we're sort of building in this sort of desert of, culture in a sense, you know? And so I think that, you know, whatever it is, is there's proof that it's working because we're building it out. Right. But, um, I don't know what it is necessarily. The complexity. Yeah. I do think it's, I do think that, that there is a, an amoral quality to it. it right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's, Right. And so in a sense, these, these, if you think of this massive entropic system of chaos, right. And there's these flows. If you can think of like the way that heat diagrams look, you know, and there's this sort of developing architecture and convection currents. And you can see like, you might be like, it's sort of like being the turtle in the jet stream on Nemo, right. You're sort of in that flow of energy that's going through. Right. And if you can get, if, if, if we can be in that, flow sometimes i think we think well this is because we're special or whatever right it's really because we're just going with it right and so i don't think necessarily that the that it's positive or negative but i think that the more that you push against it or the more that you let your fear shape what you can be you know is is really distorting the overall efficiency of the system. And so the more that you can go with the, go with the flow, I think it's, it's better. <laughs> Sounds so weird. Take the Guterma mine, for example, that place would forever have been a hole in the ground, forgotten to time, completely abandoned. But when we looked at it, when we found the article about Guterma and it tied into this whole structure that we were investigating, when we found that and we looked at that place and found all of these other things that were centered there and that spiraled off from Alexander Guterma himself and the fact that Spiro Agnew was one of the partners, the fact that Lester Burns was the owner, and then all of those things spiral outward. The fact that Pamela said that was the place where all of these rituals were taking place. We looked at that hole in the ground and by observing that place, that place now is a mythical place in this story, in this mystery, that becomes a central place. And that place redefined the entire mystery. It pulled everything together and just changed everything and added a major level of complexity. It's incredible. And, and so it keeps happening. The story keeps unfolding this way. The more that we investigate and the more that we discover it just seems like a kind of magic, but that's what magic is. Magic is second-order cybernetics. Magic is trying to find out how to control a system, to control the world we live in. It's like what Richard Spence was talking about. It's like what Marco's been talking about. All of these things are the same thing. And you can call it second-order cybernetics, or you can call it magic, or you can call it whatever, but it's a way that I think reality functions. It's a way that we function 
and interact with reality through observation. We're constantly creating these little systems a million times a day, but they don't have any persistence because we don't continue to observe them. And they just die away. A million deaths every day, a million possibilities, all gone. But the ones that you really interact with, the ones that you come back to, well, they start to interact with you. They start looking back at you. And those are the things that continually create and redefine our lives. And I think in this mystery, that's what I discovered is that the more that I interacted with this, the more magical everything seemed, the more mysterious. But it was that mystery and pursuing that mystery that right now is making everything seem so magical. In a time when everything seems so unreal and fake and dire and destructive and everything's crumbling, here's this mystery, this undefinable thing that keeps unfolding and keeps reminding me that there still is magic and there's magic to be discovered and there's this discovery that's going to happen inside yourself and about yourself and about the place that you're living in, where you are, and how that place defines you. Because this place, Somerset, the Penny Royal, just being here has completely changed us. I think in telling this story, we're changing the Penny Royal. And it's this this feedback loop, this system that's created between you and the place. And I think that's always happening. And it gets channeled in different ways. It can get channeled in dark ways. And people can have dark thoughts and be in dark spaces, the subterranean. But it can also be used and pursued in this current of creativity, like how Dan Dutton interacts with it and how a number of other people that are here interact with this. But wherever you are, Wherever you are, however you interact with the place that you are, it can be in a good way or it can be in a bad way. And you don't have to be on top of this spike of geomagnetic energy that's welling up within the earth to create some energy or magical power. Wherever you are, there's a magic there and there's a way of rediscovering how that place affects you and how you affect that place. And I think that's that's not just on a microscopic local scale. It's on a macroscopic, global scale, a national scale. And at the end of all of this, of realizing this, I wanted to go to the mind because it had become such a seminal place in this story and our lives and this concept and the symbol of, of how we could transform things, how places can transform us and how we can transform those places. And so we decided to go to the mine because I had never seen the, that place before. And in my mind, I had no idea what it was. And so Dan Dutton and Darian and Kyle and a number of other dreamers and seekers and researchers came with us and we took a trip to the mine. Josh Van Hook guided us to the mine and we took with us a six-foot-tall monument, a pyramid made of mirrors that I wanted to place at the mine as a sort of monument to this mystery and a monument to this idea of looking at a place and it looking back at you. And really, this mystery was just beginning to unfold for us and continues to unfold today. I hope that everybody will take a closer look at the place they are and research the folklore and find the local stories and find out how that place redefines you and how you redefine it and find the magic in that place the same way that we rediscovered the magic here in Somerset, in Pulaski County, on the Penny Royal. <laughs> Ain't it? Man, I could barely I, wash that yeah, I think off. so, probably. It's so red. Oh, yeah? yeah what can you come on? It's going to make family some ones. fantastic glaze. I can't wait to see it. <laughs> yeah, this place is going to... So where does the other cool entrance come in? Hopefully uh, the bottom over here. Yeah, there's a road. Like I said, it comes all the way down around the holler here and comes up to this big pond. And then me and Matt crossed the big rocks for the uh, the water break and then came around this ridge right here. And then there's a 
a little pond down here and a stream and it goes up and we had to come all the way up into that corner up there to come up the hill because this is a steep ridge. But it goes all the way around uh, past the, the flats and comes back up the holler and there's a bunch of beautiful ponds down there. I sent you pictures of them, those big ponds. That's it down there. Yeah. And then when you come across this ridge, uh, it kind of jets out again and it tucks back in and there's a big flat field where they used to pull in the mines and there's two more mines over on that side of the holler and and it tucks down in the hill like this and there's a waterfall uh, where the mine entrance was and a pool and then all the pool runs down the stream into this big pond and it's all just like fields and pine trees and cliffs it's Wow. That's where the strip mines are? That's where it's at the bottom of the strip mines. See, they put the strip mines are up on this side, and that's when they started taking the hill down, and then they would take the logging trucks out of that around this way, and then the old road tucks underneath uh, the cliffside where I go camping at and where I hunt at. Yeah, it's beautiful out here. And like I said, when you start going over the hill here, you could feel all the energy. Yeah, it feels a little dark down here. I kind of feel it myself, but up on that side, it's it's positive as fuck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's really nice. <laughs> Penny Royal is written and produced by your host, Nathan Paul Isaac. Associate producers are Darian West and Kyle Cadell. Original musical score by Philip Clonch. Edited and mixed by Boone Williams. Sponsored by Jarfly Brewing Company and the International Paranormal Museum and Research Center. If you're interested in joining the investigation and diving deeper into the story, visit pennyroyalpodcast.com and support the show by becoming a member of the Liminal Lodge. Thanks for listening and keep digging.